Monsters, Madness, and Magic, by your powers combined, I am Captain Planet! Captain Planet, he's our hero, gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified, and he's fighting on the planet's side. Captain Planet, he's our hero, gonna take pollution down to zero. Gonna help him put asunder, bad guys who like to Monsters, Madness, and Magic, the power is yours! Alright, boom. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, here with my co-hosts Jason and Mitchell, and we are joined by an oh-so-special guest this afternoon. The one, the only, O-Captain, my captain, and your captain planet himself, Mr. David Coburn. The pleasure is mine, but the power is yours! Ah, interview's <laughs> over. <laughs> We got what we need. <laughs> so usually we start out by asking our guests to detail their Eureka moment of craft, be it acting, directing, music, or whatever. But I hear that your acting quite literally smacked you in the face. Uh, how I started acting, yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like the, I've heard about your ski uh, mishap, it's your incredible. skiing mishap. It's incredible you know that story. <laughs> wow. I've done my research, but you can detail that for all the listeners a little bit and tell us how you got involved in acting. You don't, you don't know my address, my credit card number, and my and my blood type. That, that comes later. Don't worry about that right now. I'm not going to say it on air. Um, you know, some people some people wake up with the calling to be uh, to be an actor. Um, I definitely definitely needed to be listened to. My mom, my whole life, called me the king of unnecessary noises. Uh, was constantly making unnecessary noises <laughs> um, and doing silly things with my voice. But when I finally learned, uh, you know, at the age of fourteen, that people were willing to pay me for it, it kind of filled a kind of filled a gap. I think I might have said this in another interview too. Uh, acting came into my life at a par- at a time when my my parents and my family were were separating, and it kind of filled a a, a void for attention and recognition that uh, we all need at the beginning of adolescence and I happened to be really good at what I was doing and so I got a lot of great accolades and uh, my ego got fed and thank God I didn't turn into an asshole. (laughs) That's always good. You you don't want to turn into one of those. No, I mean, we've all seen, we've all seen the stories and, you know, heard the tales of young Hollywood actors gone wrong and uh, I turned down a couple of big series offers when I was little. They offered me the role that Ralph Macchio got in Eight is Enough. Wow. Really? And uh, I just, they wanted to find a helicopter at the summer camp where I was and bring me to Hollywood for a screen test. It's like, uh, no, I think I'm going to go to school in September. Thanks. Uh, so I finished high school like a normal kid, but I, I worked pretty much nonstop from 14 until, until this present moment. <laughs> now, were you, when you were in school, were you doing acting jobs then too, or did that kind of take cool. off after your schooling finished? Absolutely. No, I went to school on set for, for several weeks when I was doing TV shows or shooting films. One day at a time, different strokes, Facts of Life, 21 Jump Street, 30, 30-something, Fresh Prince, Sister, Sister, Martin, Mad About You, Jag. Blah, what, blah. Was it, what was it like 
trying to, you know, because adolescence is a rough time for pretty much everybody. What was it like trying to juggle, you know, the changes that were going on in your life, plus the responsibilities of having to continue your education, plus the responsibilities of, of being an actor? I was really glad to have so much responsibility. Mm. It kept me off the streets. I had a bank account at 14, and while the kids were making fun of me because they saw me on the Nestle's Quip commercial on TV, I was like, yeah, how's your checking account? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> laughing all the way to the bank. Laughing to the bank. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, you know, there's there's upsides and downsides. A lot of people, um, but I definitely grew up quickly, which was a pain in the ass when you were a kid, but it's definitely an asset when you're an adult because you've got survival skills at a younger age than most. You mature faster. You kind of understand how things work a little bit earlier than everybody else. My parents were coming to me and asking me for loans when I was <laughs> <laughs> you just touched on your parents divorced a little bit uh we've had a few other voice actors on like tc carson and simon templeton uh and they've both touched on almost the therapeutic nature of voice acting is that something you've experienced too especially starting your voice acting out during that time <laughs> it's, a good, it's a really good question um it's not directly linked to my parents' divorce, but the, the ability to get effortlessly lost in the world make-believe for half hour, an hour, a week, if you're lucky enough to get a part in a TV show, a, a, a year if you get a series regular somewhere, you know, you can disappear into a fantasy world that is much easily, much more easily managed than real life. Right. Um, and that part of it is very therapeutic. You have the right to play. Like, deep into my early 50s now, I'm still a big old kid. And I get paid to make goofy sounds in front of a microphone. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the ability to... The fact that I haven't lost my ability to play has been a real asset, uh, both as a actor and as a, a human being, as a dad and as a, as, as a friend, uh, as a, a boyfriend or husband, you know. Sense of humor goes a long way. The ability to make up funny voices and have an interesting perspective on life with a tiny little bit of fantasy sprinkled in it makes for makes for a more interesting journey i think yes sir I get to protect I people right now i just finished a series i was working on out of london um we did 51 episodes of a new show called uh, ninja express and um i probably shouldn't talk about it too loud but um i got to play <laughs> a, a character that you know, it was uh, nothing but fantasies. A five centimeter tall ninja who speaks nonstop and can't say any identifiable words. Mm. So no scripts, and everything that was coming out of my mouth was just improv, gibberish, gibberish, improv gibberish. But you had to be able to understand <laughs> what I wanted, what I was saying, uh, how the story was advancing. I, you know, they were they were complicated circumstances with intricate uh, relationships between me and my brothers and the people that we were serving in the show and. <clears throat> So it is very therapeutic to just disappear into a fantasy world and make gobbledygook come out of your mouth for a couple of hours and get paid. No doubt. I can't say that it was, uh, you know, panacea for life's problems, but I like the petite respite that you get every once in a while when you jump into the booth and you forget about taxes or yeah, right. troubles. Or so just... how did you land? How did you land the role of Captain Planet initially? How was that audition process? It's a um, audition like. Any other audition I had at the time, I had a voiceover agent who was pretty well connected with the animation community in Los Angeles. Um, I got an audition to go read for some cartoon series. I knew nothing about it. Um, and the lady that uh, auditioned me, Marcia Goodman, 
who was the director of the first uh, four seasons, she uh, told me the circumstance. You're lying down. Um, you've just been covered up in toxic goo. And the Planeteers, uh, they're your friends. They rinse you off with some clean water. You stand up and you say, thanks, Planeteers. And then you go on to the next line. And uh, so I played the circumstance. And I pretended that I got covered in fresh water. And I stood up and I went, thanks, Planeteers. <laughs> and the fact that I shook my head off like a, like a dog was what got me the gig. Really? That's what they said. They liked the fact that I was playful and, you know, I wasn't too... Uh, majestic and superhero-y. It was more like a big brother or a coach and that there's something kids right. could play to and I had a sense of humor. I wasn't too precious. You guys probably know Tom Cruise recorded the first six episodes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it just wasn't working out, which is why they created these auditions and I came in and luckily got to replace the guy. What's it like knowing that, you know, the a role that you had just seriously touched and impacted so many people's lives because all three of us here grew up watching it and, you know, all of my friends have grown up watching it. So, I mean, you've, because the show's been, what, it, if you look online, it says it ran from like 90 to 96, but it's still in syndication today. So, I mean, you're still getting an audience and, and educating and touching on people's lives. What's that like knowing that you do that for people? It's beautiful that you recognize that. So, thank you. Yeah, of course. It is the only acting job I've had that's ever done any real good for anybody. Um... It's a powerful, uh, powerful thing to think that your craft, um, which was really just making silly voices into a microphone, actually carries global responsibility. Um, yeah. I talked about it when I think I was like 20, 21. There was an interview on Entertainment Tonight. I think it's available on YouTube. It's really embarrassing. But uh, <laughs> I, we realized uh, that we were onto something big. Um, and we didn't know that as actors when we started. It became self-evident after the show came out and started to get real press and the celebrity cast joined on to play all the villains and we saw what kind of clout Ted Turner was able to muster and um, I met Mikhail Gorbachev and his wife Raisa at the Environmental <laughs> Media Awards. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, I took a piss next to Ted Turner in the bathroom that night. <laughs> Well, I was just about to ask you if you've ever met Ted Turner face-to-face, -face, but that answers my question. <laughs> we were shoulder to shoulder. We met several times, actually. Um, but that was, the first, that was the first time we'd met since the launch of the series, and he was at the table with Jane. And, and uh, Nick Boxer, the producer, came up and introduced me to all four of them, Ted and Jane and Mikhail and Raisa. And I went to the bathroom, and Ted Turner parks himself next to me at the Ural next to me. He looks at me and goes, oh, David, how do you... How do you feel about being Captain Planet? We're both just like midstream, basically. <laughs> and I said what I just told you guys. I said, it's, it's amazing, Ted. It's a powerful, powerful gig. It's the only job I've ever had as an actor that's ever done any good for anybody. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go get some beef. <laughs> <laughs> I met with Ted Turner face-to-face -face three times in 2007. In 2007, I volunteered to work for Al Gore. Um, I was invited to Nashville for a training program. I was one of 1,000 people selected out of 44,000 applicants to go to Nashville and learn how to talk about climate change the way he did in An Inconvenient Truth to people in our own community. And he gave us authorization to use his slides and his information. And he taught us some pretty amazing presentation skills. And I spent a week next to Cameron Diaz in Nashville and got uh, his authorization to go out and teach. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
for a year, I spoke to kids about climate change. I spoke to probably about 50,000, 60,000 kids along the eastern seaboard between New York and Florida. Um, it's, it's an amazing gift. I just thought it was a voiceover job. It turned out to be something that affected literally three or four generations. And my point to Ted, before I left the United States and moved to France, I was trying to, I was trying to launch uh, an environmental ed- a national environmental ed- education program with Captain Planet as the national spokesperson. I had Al Gore on one side, I had Ted Turner on the other side, and I thought this is a perfect, perfect union. Right. And my point to both of them was that children are the only demographic on the planet not motivated by profit. Mm. Very Ideology true. alone. True. Look at you guys. What are you, 25, 26? I'm 20. I'm, oh, God, I'm 30. I was about to say 29, but I'm out of there now. 30. 26. I mean, like, we're literally talking about three generations of people in America that have been touched by this show, and their offspring are growing up with the same value systems that were cultivated when you guys were kids. Right. And those kids today are our consumers and our legislators of the future. And we could really shape what kind of planet we live in if we started educating people from a younger age. It seemed kind of obvious to me. But I couldn't get the politician to agree to work with the diplomat, and I couldn't get the diplomat to agree to... I couldn't get the politician to work with the billionaire. I couldn't get the billionaire to work with the diplomat, and the two of them couldn't come to an agreement. I moved to France. That seems like a difficult union. (laughs) The message was so clear and so common, and to me it was so obvious. I came up with the term, which... Uh, with the Gore campaign, I think they're still using, called Inconvenient Youth. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, you kind of just touched on it, Um, other voice actors we've had on, they've, of course they enjoy their roles, and they, but Captain Planet seems like it means a little bit more to you, that you've taken on some personal responsibility that associate, that is associated with the role, you know, and you kind of... Choice, man. (laughs) I really have a choice. I remember coming home from work I think we were in the second or third season. I was coming home from work, and there were these kids on my street. I lived in a little cul-de-sac in, in Northridge, California at the time. And there were these kids on my street, and one of them was this little Mexican guy, Mario. And Mario's like, hey, Capitan, hola, Capitan, Capitan. He's like, hey, what's up, Mario? How you doing, man? And I realized, and I still smoked cigarettes at the time, and I realized I can, I can no longer throw my cigarette out the window. I can no longer smoke in front of Mario. <laughs> I have a responsibility at least for the people that see me as Captain Planet, to see Captain Planet as something important to them, I have a responsibility to uphold that image and to propagate that message in a positive way. So that's never been true. You know, it wasn't true of the, the evil Italian lawyer I played on Martin or the stuttering mobster I played on Mike Hammer. It, you know, those roles don't come with any social responsibility. They also don't come with the opportunity, as we just said, to, to reach literally three or four generations with something that's gen- genuinely good for humanity, you know, I'm really good friends with a lot of the guys that you've interviewed. We grew wow. up in a lot of the same shows. This is a rare opportunity to be involved in a show that has that comes with an ideology, right? And especially one as important as the ideology as it has. Well, look because, at I mean, it now, too. Now, 2020, literally 30, 40 years after Al Gore said, "Watch out," Ted Turner's been an environmentalist since the late 80s. But everybody thought Ted Turner was a, Ted Turner was a mad millionaire. Yeah, I would say based on 2020, the world needs Captain Planet now more than ever. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> There's a huge Facebook community that I see posts uh, echoing that sentiment all the time. Um, I'm good friends with Barbara Pyle, the creator. I'm good friends with Nick Boxer, the director and the writer of the theme song, and 
the executive producer, and they all agree. There's a, I think the problem. The problem is that the people that own the license right now don't have the same sense of social responsibility that we do. Or that the Planeteers that grew up watching that show and loving that show, and believing in that ideology, do. Warner Brothers is sitting on Captain Planet. Oh, yeah, Brothers, that's... I don't know what I don't really know what their reticence is or why they're holding back. Um, I know that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio recently purchased the uh, film production rights for, the fe- for a feature film version of it. I guess that was last year. I spoke to a, a reporter at the, at the Hollywood Reporter who interviewed me. We had a lovely conversation. Um, I agree with you, man. The world needs Captain Planet. I think it's a little dated right now, so it would kind of have to be updated to mm-hmm. meet uh, children's attention span requirements these days. Yeah, there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on. <laughs> But there's also the still is, I mean, my kids and I still look at it, and I've got the first season on DVD, and there's still a really cool vintage quality to it, and the acting is, is cheesy, and the drawings are cheesy, but the storylines are solid, and the messaging is solid, and um, it resonates louder now than it did when we brought it out 25 years ago. Right. Did you, do you have a single moment that you can point to where the impact of the character dawned on you? You're just like, wow, this is out of this world. <laughs> I was in New Zealand in 2007 shooting a commercial for a French uh, entertainment company. Um, I was the only actor on this 5 million euro commercial and it was a pretty amazing experience and I had one day off in Auckland, New Zealand. And on that day off I went to a yoga class, just going to take it easy and chill out. And on my way back to the hotel for my yoga class I saw this group of people, probably three or 4,000 people in the middle of the street in this big plaza protesting and they all had globe signs of the globe, pictures of the globe, there were tons of Captain Planet faces everywhere. People were holding Captain Planet cards in the middle of Auckland, and they were all chatting, like, like chanting something environmental. I can't remember exactly what it was. And, and I went up to some guy with a Captain Planet poster, and I said, excuse me, man, excuse me. Man. How do you know Captain Planet? He goes, oh, everybody knows Captain Planet, bro. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is incredible, man. I said, you're not going to believe me. You're not going to believe me, but... I'm Captain Planet. I mean, like, no. I'm like, yeah. He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, come here. <clears throat> By your powers combined. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> he grabbed me by the shoulder and pulled me up to the podium. And one second I was on my way home from yoga class on a day off. And the next minute, I was standing in front of 3,000 people talking to people about <laughs> environmentalism and stewardship. And climate change and Captain Planet's mess, it was insane. It was insane. It was the other side of the globe. And this guy recognized my voice. There are times where I have arguments with people at bars. They'll say, I'm Captain Planet. They'll say, no, you're not. And I'll say, just, please just close your eyes. It's a big, thick-necked football player, you know. I'll come up behind him. I'll go, by your powers combined. And go, <laughs> like a little schoolgirl and stuff. It's amazing the impact that it's had on people. It's really amazing. It's humbling. And I'm sure that's not something you expected, you know, because you said you were doing goofy voices into a microphone, and I'd, I'd be surprised to hear that you thought it was going to take off and have as much of an impact on people's lives as it did. Nobody knew, except Ted. Yeah. Ted and Barbara. They, he Barbara was the billionaire. Bob, they knew. They've been, they've been doing documentary films on environmental uh, studies and climate change all over the world. And Ted's been financing them out of his pocket for years. Everybody, like I said, everybody thought he was a lunatic, just a millionaire lunatic. He would buy, he would buy huge, huge pieces of land to keep people from developing it. So I know, outside of, but there's this group of Hollywood celebrities 
that have purchased green space between Canada and the Gulf of Mexico so that migrating Canadian geese have a place to land no matter what happens in terms of home development and property development. There'll be landing spots of green space, a, a, like a chain of airports for geese, if you will. But that's the kind of stuff that, that uh, philanthropists, uh, millionaires like, like Ted Turner are responsible for. He, he, he was a visionary, and so was Al Gore. And now we've got literally three or four generations of people that share the same vision and don't know how to act. I totally agree with you. The show should come back out, even if it's even in its current state. I almost got close to making a deal with Telemundo to re-release all the episodes in Spanish with new Spanish music. I got Gloria and Emilio Estefan to sign on. Wow. We were oh. going to release all the Spanish versions in Latin America, because the Spanish versions are great. All the, the, we've got all the 111 episodes translated into Spanish. They've been translated in over 75 languages worldwide, syndicated in over 93 countries. Wow. So, yeah, no, it, it's, the reach is way bigger than we thought when we were sitting in the room reading into the microphone. Were you always an environmentalist, or did it, you know, you started doing the show and you started reeling like, hey, this is something that people should be more aware of and kind of got into it from that, or were you an environmentalist from the get-go? I was born in 1965, okay? So in the mid-'70s, I was 10. My parents were members of the Sierra Club, which is an uh, environmental organization, national environmental organization to protect the mountains. They were kind of crunchy granola hippie people. Uh, my mom played the guitar, and we, we spent a lot of time in the mountains and stuff. I can't say I was an environmentalist. I wasn't really conserving water or sorting my trash or anything, but I, I loved the earth, and I respected nature. And I went to Hawaii at an early age because I lived in L.A., and the relationship that the Hawaiian people have with the earth there is very sacred. And that was something that really struck me, even as a child. Um, and, but I didn't really become an environmentalist and make myself responsible for the impact of my behavior that I had on the world around me until Mario called me captain coming home from work that day. And I realized, <laughs> you just kind of realized that I have a responsibility to these people now. <laughs> Not just to these people, but also to the planet. I can't, I can't say all these things in the recording studio, go out and do interviews and lead cheers on Earth Day, and then... It's like you were be an eco villain behind the curtain. Yeah, I mean, it's like you were talking about. You smoked. You can't, you know, like you said, hold cheers and do this, and then they see Captain Planet flicking cigarette butts out the window, or you know, it's well, what kind of message does that send? That does it doesn't work, man. Unless unless you're an asshole. <laughs> Did you enjoy switching it up from time to time to Captain Pollution? <laughs> I love Captain Pollution. They were going to find another actor, and I said, no, 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 let me do it, let me do it. <laughs> did you have to, did you do anything special to kind of put yourself in the mindset of Captain Pollution? Because, I mean, he's obviously a little bit different than Captain Planet as far as morals. Did you, you kind of, like, do anything to hype yourself up, or was it just kind of natural, quick switch? You no, know, it, all, it all happens. It all happens pretty naturally, pretty quickly. Um, at that time in Los Angeles, the California surfer accent was like really, you know, totally, <laughs> totally hip, totally cool. Everybody was making fun of Jess Coley or the California surfer guy. Um, so it was sort of an iconic sound, and it was it represented irresponsibility. So that choice seemed kind of obvious, and it was a good way to separate the two voices so that when I was speaking to myself, it sounded like two different characters. I took a really great uh, voiceover workshop with Charlie Fleischer once in Los Angeles. Charlie Fleischer, the voice of Roger Rabbit, and mm. literally thousands of other amazing, amazing roles. And it was an expensive night, but a valuable night. My big takeaway from that coaching session with him was, he says, your best work 
is when you're in creative free fall. And if you know exactly what you're going to do, exactly how you're going to do it, exactly how you're going to say it, uh, it might be competent, but it won't be as interesting as if you're trying to catch your balance the whole time and not quite falling. Right. And he said, as you're falling down the stairs and not quite landing on your face, you're doing a lot of really interesting stuff. And so sometimes the lack of constraints were really helpful creatively. Instead of saying, you know, I knew exactly what I was going to do with this character, um, you just try stuff in the studio and let everybody laugh or not. That's how they, a lot of those characters in The Simpsons were born. They were just sitting around cracking each other up. It's more natural that way. and It's organic, for sure. You can tell what's truly funny, what, what's contrived or uh, intellectually conceived instead of emotionally driven. Voiceover is acting. It is very, 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 very little to do with your voice and everything to do with the meaning behind the words that you're communicating. Less evident in cartoons because there's a certain aesthetic in cartoons that people have grown accustomed to where everybody talks like everything is really urgent, which may not necessarily be the case in life, but... Um, the emotion is the driving force. It should be, and, and, and the vocal tricks come later. You know, I have, some, I have a really, really, really good pal named Richie, Richie Horvitz, Richard Horvitz. Have you guys ever spoken to him? Captain, Captain Zarm, I believe. Um, he's a hundred billion voices. <clears throat> anyway, Richie talks like this. He's got a broken voice. And every time you call him up to say hello, this is what he sounds like. He doesn't have a beautiful voice, but he's a brilliant actor. He's a great comedian. And... Um, his feelings are clear every time you hear, you hear him speak. Now, along with uh, voice acting, you also do work on Broadway, correct? <laughs> on camera, behind the camera, um, at the microphone, behind the microphone. I'm a pianist, I'm an arranger, I'm a composer, I'm a producer, and yeah, I sing and dance. I did 507 performances of Saturday Night Fever on Broadway. Oh, from really? 1998 to 2001. Do you find... Um I mean, is there, you know, one more enjoyable for you than the other, you know, is, or is one easier than the other, or is it just kind of yeah. two totally different games? They are totally different games, um, but they require uh, different skills. Um, I coach a lot of voiceover actors. I produce a lot of voiceover actors who are starting, and I help them produce their demos, and I teach them, and I coach them, and I train them, and, and I explain to them, uh, acting at the microphone is no different than acting on a Broadway stage. It's just that on a Broadway stage, the back of the house is several hundred feet away from your face. On a film set, the camera's 10, 15 feet away from your face. In a vocal booth, the microphone's five inches from your nose. The performance still has to be full, but it has to fit into a tinier space. So you probably have to adapt and, and do things a little differently, I would imagine. You, they're totally different skills. They're, like I said, they're all emotion and motivated. It's still acting, but... Yeah, Broadway was the hardest acting job I've ever had in my life. We did 507 shows in two and a half years, eight times a week. Oh, my Lord. That is quite the busy schedule. Every night, and I understudied three other principal roles that I covered when people were sick or just couldn't take it anymore. Um, I, I played seven roles in that show, and uh, it lasted for two and a half years. And it's funny. You spend your whole life thinking, man, one day I could just make it to Broadway. Just make it to Broadway. God. You know, Hollywood's great, and uh, voiceover's great, and TV's great, but if I could just make it to Broadway, and you make it to Broadway, and you're like, wow, this is it? Wow. This is tough. It was hard. You had to show up to the theater at 6 o'clock, 6.30, to warm up the body and warm up your voice with your stomach empty, because you can't do a show at 8 o'clock with a belly full of food, 
And then you get off stage at quarter to 11 and you're starving. You don't really go to bed before 2 or 3 in the morning. You don't get much of a day the next day unless you're really disciplined. Second year was better for me than the first year. I kind of got a handle on my performance. It required less preparation and less time to come down from. But it's two and a half hours of aerobic dancing. I had four costume changes in Act 1 and three costume changes in Act 2. Oh, wow. So it's just, I mean, constantly... It's a sprint. I weighed... 15 pounds less than I do right now, and I'm not fat. <laughs> so, um, I like voiceover because I can be absolutely anything. It doesn't have to look like my face. Since video games and motion capture have come into existence, I really enjoy the acting I've done in video games. I've worked in some pretty big games, um, Beyond Two Souls with Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. I was in Detroit Become Human. Oh, I love that game. Great game. That's a pretty good game, Detroit, yeah. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. I play Agent Connors, the CIA operative that does bad things to our hero at the end. Oh, I didn't even realize that was you. You yeah, did a great job. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. Wow. Thanks, man. Thanks. And in, uh, in Beyond Two Souls, I played uh, Stan, homeless guy who saves Ellen Page's life when he finds her uh, dying in the snow. And I, I spent about 25 days working on that with her, with uh, captors all over my face, wearing a, a mocap suit. That world is amazing, too, because there are really no limitations except what your imagination can put forward. There was one scene where I was supposed to pick up a hot cup of coffee to offer it to her that I was pulling off of a, an imaginary fire. And it was just five rolls of duct tape, duct taped together. <laughs> and I had to pretend that it was a hot can of coffee cooking on a homeless fire. Um, that's really fun for me. Plus, I'm not looking at anything. When I look out into the distance, I'm looking at 125 infrared cameras. I've seen photographs or images or drawings of the decor, but it's all in your imagination. Voiceover is the same way. There's really no limitations except those which you said for yourself. Um, some people have wider ranges than others, but I like the fact that I could play a woman or, um, you know, a, a black guy or uh, an old man or uh, a, a fantasy creature. Um, or child. And it kind of gives you the, with that almost infinite possibilities. I mean, it's like you said, it's the only, it's only limited by your imagination. And the script that you're thrust <laughs> in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and most of the time when people throw a script at you and you're creating a voice character, nobody knows what it's supposed to sound like. Nobody knows what they're waiting for. So you've got, like, it's like the first dip into a brand new peanut butter jar, the first bite of a crisp apple, you got carte blanche, you can do whatever you want. That's not true on an episode of Murder, She Wrote, or Friends. you got to play that guy. You yeah, you've got to be this guy and fit within yeah. these parameters for that. Like the, I can't remember his name right now because I'm trying to remember it, but the actor who played the voice of Gollum. Uh, Andy Serkis. Yeah, Andy Serkis. He did okay, the voice I mean, and he did the mocap. Have you ever seen him do Gollum's voice, like on a talk show? I have not. He's, there's an episode of Stephen Colbert. Uh, where he, um, he he comes on and he does some Gollum voices. He reads some questions that, that, that Colbert gives him in the voice of Gollum. And it's it's much better when you close your eyes, you know? Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes I do the voice of Captain Planet, and people look at me like, what is that voice doing coming out of that guy? <laughs> like, I am that guy. It's, it's really, it's a lot more effective if you just close your eyes, I promise you. <laughs> So in uh, 2006 and 2007, you attempted to resurrect Captain Planet. Would you mind detailing that journey for us? I'll make it brief. Okay. Uh, when Ted Turner became, when Ted Turner sold 
TBS to Warner Brothers and CNN to Warner Brothers. Ted Turner became the largest shareholder in Warner Brothers history. He owns one-fifth of Warner Brothers, okay? But everything that Ted Turner's catalog had, now Warner Brothers owned. So we were trying to unlock the licensing agreement that Warner Brothers had in Captain Planet and unshelf the project. Couldn't get it done in English. I got really close in Spanish with the director of Telemundo in Miami. I was living in Miami in 2007 for about a year where I was doing environmental education. We had a grant from the Dade County, and I put together this traveling road show with slides and Al Gore's presentation and live music and theater and some Captain Planet stuff. And I spoke to students and scouts and churches and synagogues and nature clubs and um, any kind of social organization that would have us. Um, the idea was to show that there was a market base for it, there was an incentive for it, and to go back to Warner Brothers with proof that people wanted it. Um, I wasn't successful. I wasn't able to get Warner Brothers to release their control on the Captain Planet licensing agreement. And the people that I knew weren't strong enough to get Warner Brothers to release their control on the licensing agreement. And the fact that I was Captain Planet in the cartoon didn't change the fact that I was still just David Coburn in real life. So it's just a whole bunch of bureaucratic red tapes. Bureaucratic this bullshit. And there's profit margin there, too. Everybody can see it. It doesn't take a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist now to see it. There's, there's real profit there, even in its current state. But I don't know. It's, it had to do with bookkeeping and licensing agreements. And um, we all, all of us, signed off all future claims, any future residuals from the show. We were all paid for, I think, 10 uses up front, and we relinquished our union right to further residuals, which is a big, big deal. Normally, actors don't do that. That's how you make your living. You get royalties yeah. of your work um, to the life of the project. But we knew that this project was important. All of the celebrities that worked on the show worked for the same rate that we did. Everybody worked for union scale. Minimum wage, Whoopi Goldberg, Meg Ryan, Dean Stockwell, Sting, Ed Asner, Jeff Goldblum. Everybody worked for the same 400 bucks. So this was a genuine labor of love and people were there because they wanted to be. Everybody believed in the message. It, was, it wasn't about the money. It was about what you were trying to get across to people. The opportunity which is, to deliver this message to a younger demographic that would become the consumers and voters and politicians. Which is, I mean, that's really a beautiful thing, too, because how many, how many actors would do that because they, they care about the message? It's not that often. You know, it's, like you said, children are the only people that are not driven by greed. And the fact that you guys weren't driven by greed, you wanted to get the message across, I think that's just really beautiful that you guys set aside, you know, the money you could be making and... and any differences or egos so you could get that message across to the kids. I think that's a great thing. Thank you very much. It wasn't a difficult choice to make at the time. Everybody was really proud to be affiliated with the project and happy to be part of something so important. Um, and now, now, 25, 30 years later, it's incredible. I was in New York in 2015 for the 25th year anniversary at uh, Comic-Con. And it was just overwhelming, just overwhelming, the, the reach of this I called it a brand in the conference because that's the way where they were speaking. But it's an untapped market base. It's an untapped political base. It's an untapped educational base. Um, can't say that about The Simpsons. No. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. About 
Ren and Stimpy, and I loved Ren and Stimpy. You can't say that about the uh, fucking SpongeBob, but Captain Planet is the only cartoon series that came with an ideology. I think it's the only one of its kind. Maybe I'm wrong. Prove me wrong, please. There's probably some nerds out there that know more about cartoons than I do. But what an, what, a, what an amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, I don't think it's done. I, I think, cross your fingers, we'll see what happens in the next 45 days. You guys are registered to vote, right? Oh, yes. Sir. Yeah. Um, I think that if I can just get philosophical for a quick second, I think the world is at a turning point right now. Humanity has got a choice to make. Something that Al Gore and Ted Turner asked the world in the early 90s when they put Captain Planet on the air. But nobody was really ready to listen back then. Now, I think there's enough angry people, collectively, at least in America. I mean, I live in France. You sh- Europe is another world. Um, people's sense of civic responsibility is really different over here than it is in the United States. Captain what? Planet was about civic responsibility, not just for the United States, but for the entire planet. You had kids from all over the globe with special powers, elemental powers, you know, controlling everything that made the system work. And I think one of the things that COVID has taught us is that we are all completely interdependent for our sickness and we are all completely interdependent for our well-being. And we're not going to get out of this alone. When I was talking to kids about climate change, it could be very overwhelming. And I would say to them, imagine that you've got a bathtub full of water and there's a thousand holes in the bathtub and it's leaking everywhere. Well, even if you're a really concerned citizen with 10 good fingers, you stop up 10 holes, there's still 90 of them leaking. 900, whatever, 990 of them leaking. But if you get a thousand people with one little pinky, problem solved. Nobody has to do anything except their little finger. And we all think the problem is insurmountable because we're looking at it in terms of our own personal sphere of influence. But collectively, maybe we could actually make a difference. I think that's what we're going to see is true this election. There are enough angry Mexicans and black people and women and disenfranchised voters and millennials and progressives and hopefully, you know, uh, centrists that will overwhelmingly speak and humanity will make a better choice. Right. And, and you touched on the whole, you know, getting a thousand people to, to plug the holes. And I think that's where a lot of people get discouraged is, is they look at it as, you know, I'm one person. What can I do? But it's really what can I apologize about that. It's really what can we do? And they don't ever look at it from that. It's the only solution. If everybody's wearing their mask except one sick person, people are getting sick. Right. If everybody wears their mask, whether they're sick or not, nobody gets sick. It's civic responsibility. And they don't teach this in schools. They don't teach it in Europe here. They don't teach it in America. Civic responsibility. Like, it's kind of what Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad were all talking about. Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so easy. It's not that hard of a lesson it's to learn. Just don't really be a shitty person. Well, if you're going to be a dick, then bad shit's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Period. You're not going to have enough fresh water to drink. You're not, it doesn't matter your right to bear arms. You're not going to have a clean glass of water, man. Right. And... Yeah, the glass half empty, glass half full metaphorically matters depending on where you are. If you're in a desert, it's definitely half full. If you're in a rainforest, who gives a fuck? (laughs) And right now, America is at a crossroads. We've got a choice to make. What is important to us? 
And if America makes the right choice, I believe there will be echoes worldwide. This is the first time in the history of recorded information that everybody on the planet is suffering the same plight at the same time. The Spanish flu wasn't the entire planet. The world wars wasn't the entire world. This is everybody. Inescapably everybody. This one thing environmentalism taught me. We all live with the same reality, whether we want to look at it or not. Right. Climate change is a universal responsibility. It's a universal problem, and the solutions are only possible if we work collectively. Al Gore told us about a sunfield that a northern European company was developing for northern Africa, and they wanted to put all over Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia solar fields to pump enough electricity to Western Europe to shut down all the nuclear reactors and to close down all the coal, power, coal field power plants. But the people that ship gasoline and coal wouldn't allow it. It would have created jobs, it would have created clean energy, sustainable clean energy. You'll see. We they won't lose their money. Yeah, listen, Gore talked to us about the, the frog in the warm water. You bring the frog to a boil slowly, he just boils and dies. But you throw the frog into boiling water, he jumps out and he saves the skin. The mm. point being that people don't n notice incremental change, really. They only notice sudden change. And it isn't until catastrophe comes and knocks on our door and 400 million refugees show up on our shores that we're going to recognize that it's time for us to change our economic model. Look how much money the Republicans and the Trump supporters made during the fucking pandemic. Sickening. It's, it's insane. It should be illegal. Human there, are, there are a lot of greedy, uneducated people in the world. But I believe there are more of us. Right. And I believe that now is the time. The power is yours. <laughs> the power is ours. I, I'm going to vote. I'm voting from France. I've only got one vote. But together, when you think about it, 65% of our country voted in 2016. And of that 65% that voted, Hillary won 3.5 million more votes than Trump did. That's the greatest margin, the greatest turnout in any electoral history in our nation's existence. And she still lost. Yep. It can't be 37% of 65% of our nation. It's got to be everybody this time. It's got to be. And well, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. How inspiring would it be on election night to know that there was a 92, 95% turnout? It'd be incredible. I think that based on everything that's going on, if that's ever going to happen, if we're ever going to get a turnout, that the turnout we need, it's, it ha it's going to be this year or it's never going to happen. Now or never. I totally agree, man. You've got climate change. You've got anarchy. You've got fascism knocking on our door. Uh, the climate scientists said that the tipping point happened two and a half years ago. Wow. You know? Now, I don't believe that that's true. Uh, Greenland hasn't fallen into the Atlantic yet. India's not underwater yet, but we've got to eliminate fossil fuels. We've got to eliminate fossil fuel consumption from our way of life, which means we've got to have electric and solar cars. We've got to have solar-powered homes. We've got to have wind farms, and, and we've got to have clean nuclear power. We've got to stop burning carbon and coal. We've got to figure out how to capture the methane in the, that's coming out of the permafrost in Alaska. And there's lots of climate solutions available. They're just like getting press and investment. Right. That has to shift. Our economic model has to shift. Our educational model 
needs to shift. I think this is a big wake-up call. I really thought when, when, when Trump got elected and the first couple of crazy things he said, I thought that would have been enough. But our, our relationship with truth has been damaged. Yes. Yeah, very, very. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A relationship with truth itself. And I like the innocence of Captain Planet and the people that believed in it. I like the just just the just this the simple innocence that people would actually get together and clean up a beach together. My my kids have done that. Yeah. Because of Captain Planet. They've organized cleanups at parks in their own class. Um it's possible Buddhists say you change yourself, you change your family, you change your family, you change your community, you change your community, you change the society, you change the society, you change your government, you change your government, you change your laws, you change your laws, you change the world. That's the Buddhist way of making the world better one person at a time. Nobody, that's the sad part, Captain Planet isn't real. Mm -hmm. But your powers combined is. And his message, what he's trying to convey is very real. I am your powers combined and magnified. Without a world full of people who care, there is no Captain Planet. The Captain Planet is the sum total of all our collective energy. Right. And it's not pretty motivational for me. I think it was pretty motivational for you guys when you were younger. I can see you seem slightly moved by it even today in your bearded, jaded state. <laughs> <laughs> You're not totally bitter. You're not totally jaded. No, no. Um, it's really sweet. It's really powerful, man. It's really, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply honored. You just and, mentioned uh, your kids. Did when did your kids realize that their dad was Captain Planet? Did they know all along? <laughs> my kids were grew up uh, uh, with an American father and an American mother in France, and I wanted to make sure that my kids spoke perfect English like their dad. And they speak perfect French. They speak perfect French without an accent. They speak perfect English without an accent. So I exposed them only to things that I wanted them to see. They couldn't see English cartoons. They couldn't turn on Disney because um, they didn't have the Disney Channel in the house. Um, so they watched Elmo for a while and Sesame Street. And they watched Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers for a while. And then I showed them the Magic School Bus. And, and I showed them Captain Planet and the Planeteers. So they knew very young, three and a half, four they knew that Daddy was Captain Planet. That's kind of um, But they, didn't, they thought that it was actually me. They wanted to know where my red underwear was. <laughs> you only bring that out on anniversaries. You know, keep the red underwear away from Mommy, all right? It's kind of a grown-up thing. Well, David, I think you long enough. Uh, quite an experience for us. Uh, and do you, before we let you go, do you have anything coming up? Do you have a, somewhere we can send folks Go ahead and plug something for us. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. I've got a film coming out uh, in spring called Luz, L-U-Z, L-U-Z. It's the story about uh, a Colombian housekeeper who works in a diplomat's house in Germany and is the victim of horrible diplomatic abuse. Oh. It's a pretty rampant problem in diplomatic households, high-level diplomatic households here in Europe. I play the evil diplomat the horrible, abusing asshole. Um, and uh, we shot last summer in Stuttgart, and it was a very successful uh, shoot. It will be released in Germany and here in France in October, a shortened version of the film in October um, on Arte, A-R-T-E, the Arte Network, which is a very, very clever uh, artistic network here in Europe. It's a German-based network. 
Um, they do a lot of amazing co-products. Uh, so that's coming out in springtime. The long version of that, that should be coming out in springtime. I just finished uh, Ninja Express. We're in post-production for probably for the next six to eight months. That should be out on uh, Cartoon Network awesome. in summertime. Pretty pretty funny show, 51 episodes, about uh, three ninja brothers who have a uh, magic delivery service that allows them to bring you anything you need, anywhere, anytime. Um, very funny. I was lucky enough to create that role. Uh, wow. Out of scratch. They, they, didn't, they didn't have anybody, and uh, they looked high and low. They tried to replace me for about a year and came back to me afterward and was glad to be able to, to work on this show. It was really uh, solicited a lot of my creativity that a lot of voiceover jobs don't. I got to make stuff up I don't normally do. It was super fun. Um, there's a French cartoon series that I did called Sardine in Space, an adaptation of a series of French books for kids about a, a red-headed space pirate and her girlfriend who fly around with their uh, uncle, Yellow Shoulder. It's called Yellow Shoulder because that's where the parrot poops. <laughs> uh, I can relate to that. Uh, they fly through space and save space from the evil villain, Super Muscle Man. Uh, I play Super Muscle Man in the evil oh. villain, Super Muscle Man in that. He's a big old baby in a pair of red tights. Uh, very, very, very funny character. I was lucky enough to do some translation work on that show as well as some voice work, some incidental roles, and the, one of the principal roles, Super Muscle Man. I don't know if that's going to be syndicated in America, but it is, it is going out worldwide. Um, it's another really great series I did called uh, Zip Zip. It's about a fox and a wild boar who decide that they don't want to live in the forest anymore. They want to live in the comfort of a family living room in Seattle, and so they dress up like a dog and a cat. <laughs> zippers up the front. <laughs> And I play Washington the Fox, who dresses up like the dog. He's sort of like a young Johnny Carson, vocally. He's sort of, you know, he's, he's got a very sarcastic kind of a voice. And, you know, <laughs> I really like him, because everything goes his way, or it doesn't. But it doesn't matter, because he's Washington. Um, that was a really fun thing. That's coming out soon. Um, and uh, you guys, do you guys know the rabbits? Those are those little white buddies that yeah. say blah, 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 blah. yeah. yeah. So I play the Martian King in their upcoming Christmas special. Wow. The King of Mars, who is a gelatinous blob whose voice... He was very <laughs> delightful and a funny guy to play as well. <laughs> and I did a lot of really fun incidental roles for the, for the rabbits. I played uh, Otto Torx, the, the sort of nondescript evil villain who's got some other issues. <laughs> And I played Yuri, the, the uh, Russian uh, delivery drop pilot who flies over base and drops things for other people, for the rabbits. Um, so that's fun, you know, and um, video game work keeps coming in. There's two really big video game houses here in France. Quantic Dream uh, is one of them, and another one is called... slipping my mind right now. They keep me pretty well employed, both, both vocally and with the motion capture. So... Um, I did one episode of a series on Netflix called Amni. What the? Fuck? It was called. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Shot in Bulgaria, and uh, it was a. I got to play a drug addict, a uh, drug dealer. Always fun. Yeah. Do, 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 do. What was it called? Ab Ab Absentia. Absentia. Okay, there we go. It's on Netflix. And 
I think I'm in season two, episode two, I think. Man. That's enough self-promotion. Let's you talk. got a lot coming up. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about November 3rd, all right? All righty, go nothing's ahead. More, nothing's more important than, than making sure that democracy survives the next 35 days. And, uh, you know, uh, you don't need me to remind you. The power is yours! <laughs> go vote. <laughs> go vote, everybody. Go vote, Planeteers. <laughs> Make a difference one vote at a time. All right, uh, David, well, we're going to let you out of here. But before we let you go, I just need two things if you can do it for me. <laughs> can you give me a Monsters, Madness, and Magic, The Power is Yours, and a Monsters, Madness, and Magic, By Your Powers Combined? You know the rest. <laughs> we'll be quiet. I'm going to mute myself. Monsters, Madness, and Magic, The Power is Yours. Monsters, Madness, and Magic, By Your Powers Combined, I am Captain Planet. That's a wrap. I can go die happy. All good. <laughs> so nice to see those smiling faces. You've been putting a smile on my so much, face David. for 25 years, man. Yeah. So uh, that puts a big smile on mine, brother. Thank you. Really, no problem, man. Thank you. From the bottom of my tiny red underwear to the top <laughs> of my green hair. Thank you very much. Thank you man. so much, man. And anytime you will. We'll talk to Captain Planet any day of the week. So if you if we ever want to come on again, we'll we'll do it again. <laughs> I can sit and talk with you guys about anything and not just voiceover. Seriously, exactly. we we'll have you on again. We might even have a roundtable of some other actors and just talk about subjects. I would love that. I could capture. Actually, I could probably give you a list of some really interesting people that are incredibly funny conversationalists. It's, you send that over to me, and we'll make that happen. Justin, I, I would like that. I'm sorry I missed last week's uh, call. It was a crazy, crazy Wednesday for me. I'm really glad we made it happen tonight. Thank you, gentlemen. Yes, Thank sir. Thank you, sir. Have a great Thank night, and we'll be in touch. The pleasure's mine, but the power is yours. Magic.